Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Amen. You may be seated. So a couple of, I guess, uh, quick things which I'm not counting in my sermon time. Uh, as a bit of a, uh, a bit of a, an explanation of where we are and where we're at. For those of you, you know that we're in this time of discernment. We're in this time of coming together with Mount Barker Baptists and God's been doing miracle after miracle. Um, quick show of hands. Has anyone been out to the land that we have purchased in Mount Barker? If you haven't been out there, get out there onto Bolland Road. It's so exciting what, what God is doing. Um, and a big, a big part of why we're landing in Nehemiah is we've been having so many meetings for so many months. And after one of those meetings, we, uh, I, I had a, was having a little debrief with Jesus, um, which is a good thing to do. Amen. Uh, and in the debriefing session with Jesus, I just felt like the Lord led me to this incredible passage in Isaiah 61 uh, and began to show me some just great pictures. And so go with me to Isaiah 61 for a little bit as we set the scene for why we're here and what we're doing. So in Isaiah 61, this is what we read. Uh, It's Isaiah prophesying about the Messiah. This is what Jesus quotes of himself when he starts his ministry in Luke 4. And he's like, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage. Mind blown. Isaiah 61, this is 500 years before Jesus even walked the earth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God to come for all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Oh, how good's that? The oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called, watch this, underline this, oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, first stitch up is we said, in our preacher's meeting that we were going to preach from the NIV and I threw the ESV in the, in the car, so I'm reading the ESV. I realise you've got NIV. Apologies straight out of the gate. All right, <laughs> we're going to have to just deal with that. But here's the thing. As I was reading that and I was thinking through the whole Mount Barker and Hills thing and, and I really want you guys to come on this journey. This is a part of a whole church thing that God is doing and it's bigger than Hills and Mount Barker. This is what God is doing in the church, big church, all across our nation in stirring this sense of unity and togetherness. Uh, But particularly for us in Mount Barker, there was four years ago, there was sort of this journey and and a sense um, where we were were clashing was this sense of, well, who's going to die? You know, holding on to this identity of this is who we are and this is who you are and no one wants to give up anything. And it just became this clash of, of heads and as, as, This time around, as I was praying and thinking about this, I I got this picture that it's actually not about anyone dying because biblically speaking, you don't kill what's living. You prune it. Amen? You don't kill off something that's living. You prune it so that you get new growth. And I had this picture from this passage, this idea that, that 
they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. That Mount Barker and what God has done, 150 years next year they are as a church. 150 years, 150 years ago, God planted a seed in Mount Barker that has sent down roots and it has grown and it has become an oak of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, 150 years of legacy. How good is that? And Allgate Baptist, which is now Hills Baptist, but likewise for Allgate, 50 years of heritage and history. 50 years ago, a seed was planted and the roots went down and it sprung up and it's become an oak of righteousness, a planting of the Lord a work of God, testimony to his goodness and his grace and his mercy. I was, had this picture of two trees, right? Uh, and both of those trees, and I started to think about Psalm 1, which talks about that they'll be planted by streams of living water. And I started thinking about Psalm 46, which talks about there is a river that makes glad the city of God. And this picture that there's like this move of God, Holy Spirit, move of God, just just flowing and stirring. And as, as that stream moves, it, it's watering the, the oak of righteousness. Who's with me right now in their mind? And there's, so the, the river's flowing. And I got this picture that here we see these two trees planted by streams of living water and those streams are coming together. And as the streams are coming together, those trees are getting closer and closer and closer. And then I saw this picture of these, this beautiful, you know, tree that's kind of wrapped itself around like two trees that have become one different seeds root systems have gone down but those root systems because the rivers come together have like intertwined and become this beautiful big glorious strong oak of righteousness this planting of the Lord that it's not about anything dying but these two beautiful things coming together And that's the image I got of what God is doing here. And so there's some pruning that's going to happen, but it's about two becoming one, two streams coming in together. And I got so excited by that. And I shared that with with one of the the elders at their church and he just burst into tears. Beautiful, dear old man burst. And he's like, yes, that's what God's doing. I was like, yes, that is what God's doing. But then I got fascinated by the next few verses because watch this. Verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord, people who enter into the presence of God. They shall speak as you, as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, underline that. We're coming right back there in a minute. This is cool. Underline it. You're not underlining it. I can see you. (laughs) We're taking notes. We're making notes. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion and they shall have everlasting joy. Do you know that the block of land that we thought God was giving us just before this one was about three acres? And do you know that the block of land that God's doing now is six? That, that's more than a just sit there with a nod, church. That's like, come on, that, that's... That's double portion. Are you with me? That is exciting stuff. 
They shall rebuild the ancient ruins. And it, it got me thinking about the past. It got me thinking about past relationship. It got me thinking about four years ago. And for those of you who weren't tracking with us four years ago, that's okay. We can have a long conversation later. We don't have time now. But there's some pain. There was some hurt and there was some rubble. And as I read that, I was like, not only is God bringing us together, but he's restoring the ancient ruins. That he's going to rebuild the rubble. From ruins to revival. I got so excited and I thought, where else can we go but Nehemiah? Because those of you who, who read the Bible, those of you who have been in church for a little bit, you know that the story of Nehemiah is a story about from ruins to revival. It's a story about how God comes to a people who are, who are desolate, a people where the walls are broken down, where, where it's a mess. And God comes in through the leadership of this man, Nehemiah, and empowers the people and the miraculous things happen. And that which was ruined is rebuilt. I was like, oh, we got to go to Nehemiah. And then Nick and I had a conversation because we were going to do something else. And we prayerfully discerned that, yes, Nehemiah is where we're going. It's going to be so, so, so good as we jump into it. So let's go there right now. Nehemiah chapter 1. Josh, you read it beautifully. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. Everyone say Chislev. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Here's the first thing we got to do. Let's put this in its historical context, okay? We are in the year, most likely 445 BC. So 445 BC. That means we are just over 150 years since Jerusalem was sacked by Babylon and the people were brought into exile. That's important. So we're 150 years since exile and we're 90 years since Cyrus the Great ended the exile and sent the Jewish, said, you can go home. 90 years We're about 13 years on from when Ezra went back, the book just before Nehemiah, where Ezra came to teach the people the law because the temple has been rebuilt, although it's a shadow of its former self. It's still pretty messy. The people were sort of had no idea what they'd do because they'd been in exile for so long. So Ezra goes to try and teach the law. And if you read Ezra, what you find out is it's just, it's a bit of a mess. It's a struggle. The people, it's kind of, we're here, but life is hard and worship isn't really happening. There's, there's no sense of peace. There's not really a sense of, of the prophetic worship that, that they were called to have. There's not really a sense of encountering God's presence. And so the people are struggling. And so Nehemiah, in the midst of all of this, where's he? in Susa, in a citadel. Now you're looking at me like, what's that? Susa is a royal city. It's wealthy, it's extravagant, beautiful, probably being a royal city, one of the the nicest places on the planet at the time. And citadel means fortress, so it's safe. So he's in a royal fortress But more than that, jump over to verse 11. What do we see in verse 11? It says he's cupbearer to the king. Now that's key because a cupbearer is not, like it seems like a weird thing for us in our culture to have a job where I literally am Mike's cupbearer. 
here's your cup, brother. And he's like, thanks. And then, hello, I'd like a cup, please. Like, that's not what this is. A cupbearer is effectively like the chief bodyguard. This is secret service for the president. Like, this is... This is, but it's, it's even more than that. It's a trusted confidant. It's, a, it's someone who, that you would lean into for, it's an advisor. Like this person has power. This person has authority. And this person has, has an audience with the king, perhaps more than almost anybody else. So this is an extremely privileged position. It is also a very risky position at times because if someone's poisoned the drink, you drink it first, you die. Which means you've got your finger in every pie because you are aware of everything that's going on. You've got friends in every single place. And so Nehemiah is sitting in a privileged position in a palace, in a royal city, in a fortress. It's no wonder that his name is Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah means Yahweh has comforted. Ah. Nehemiah means Yahweh has comforted. So here's the first thing we're supposed to understand as we approach Nehemiah. We're supposed to get the fact that Nehemiah is comfortable. Yeah, Nehemiah has been comforted by God. Nehemiah is in a really good place. He's in Persia, but he's in a good place. But he is concerned. He has concern for Jerusalem. Why? Friends, think about this. This is 150 years after the exile, right? Nehemiah is born and raised in Persia. He didn't come from the ex, like he, he's, it's not like he's been in slavery. He's in a palace, yeah? It's not like he's like when Israel were in Egypt and they're in slavery, constantly longing for better days. He's in a really cushy spot, comfortable, where he grew up and probably where his parents grew up and where his grandparents grew up and probably maybe even his great-grandparents. He's a long way removed. How many of you know where your ancestors were 150 years ago? Anybody? (laughs) Some of you. How many of you care? (laughs) Oh, no one. (laughs) Like, honestly, let's be real for one second, especially, I'm going to say our generation. Can I do that? Great. (laughs) It just happened. (laughs) It just happened if it makes me feel better. But like, like we're not into that. We're not really into ancestry and stuff, are we? It's not like we, we're constantly thinking about, oh, 150 years ago, my great, great, great grandparents were in this place and I've got this real affiliation for that place. We just, like, we're the YOLO generation. YOLO? What accent was that? <laughs> you know, we're like the, we're just, you know, just getting on with the day-to-day. Yeah, we're just looking forward, right? And this is, uh, can we be honest? This is how we live, Amen. Do you know what? My dad, who's now in his 70s, and his siblings probably, oh, it must have been almost, I'm going to reveal my age here, but almost 20 years ago, they got into like ancestry stuff, right? And I don't talk about this very much, but this was a huge part of what God started to do in my life in calling me into this sense of like ministry and mission and preaching and this sort of gear because they were getting in there. They actually created their own website. You can look it up. It's called Shep's Place. <laughs> Dot net, I think. 
And it's amazing. Like, it's so detailed. It tells the story of the shepherds and the butterfields and all these other people. There's all these, like, this incredible, like, website unpacking the family tree of where I come from. And I was, like, trying to show that I cared in the midst of all that they were excited about. And I started talking to my dad. I'm like, oh, you know, talk to me about this. Who's this? Who's that? What's going on? And he started getting excited and talking about these different names. And then he pointed to a name and this, this changed, my, like, changed my world. He pointed to a name and he goes, do you know who that is? And I was like, no. And the name was William Carey. And some of you are like, who's that? <laughs> William Carey, Baptist pastor, known as the father of modern missions, went to India proclaimed the gospel, started missionary movements, the father of modern missions. And as I'll never forget, as my dad pointed to that name, he said, David, this matters. And he's like, this is just one part of your heritage of faith. And we're talking 20 years ago and something happened in that moment. I'd been saved for probably three, four years. And something happened in that moment where the Spirit of God just started to stir something in me because now I knew where I came from. And I was like, oh, I want to I want to do that. I don't know if it's international mission, but I want to I want to do that. Like I, there's something there. And as I as I started to learn about where I've come from, it started to help me understand this picture of who God was making me to be. And I think the reason that Nehemiah in verse 2 it says that he was concerned like he sends word and he gets word from his mates and he has concern for Jerusalem is because despite having his whole life in Persia in palaces and in security Persia's his home but his heart's with Jerusalem his heart's with Israel because he knows where he comes from and because he knows whose he is it begins to shape who he is. Are you with me? Because when we know whose we are, it begins to shape who we are. And when we know who we are, it begins to shape the posture of our heart. And what we see in Nehemiah is a man who know where, he knows where he's come from. He knows where his heritage is. And he knows that that is shaping his identity as a man called for mission. A man called for mission, created for mission, placed for mission. And here's the thing, friends, this is true for every single person here. Because it doesn't matter if your great, great, great ancestor is William Carey or not. You might be first generation Christian. Your life might be rubble right now. But if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Amen. If you are in Christ, you have been, the Bible calls it, adopted into sonship. Now, sonship there is not a gender term. It's an inheritance term. It's talking about receiving from God the fullness of what God has for us in Christ, that we are co-heirs with Christ, part of God's family. I'm starting to get a bit excited. This is who you are. You have a heritage. Hebrews talks about a great cloud of witnesses. You're in Christ. That shapes your identity. You're His, which defines who you are. A child of the living God. And because you're a child of the living God, there's mission on your life. 
Now that mission might be simply where you are placed right now in your work. That mission might be to family. That mission might be to young children who want to play basketball. That mission might be preaching. It might be going to the nations. I don't know what God's calling you to, but you have mission. You have purpose because you're a child of God. And so what we see is that Nehemiah is comfortable, but he's concerned. So he sends word or he receives word, I should say. He receives word. He's like, how's my brothers and sisters? Now watch what happens. The word comes back, verse three. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile in, are in great trouble and shame for the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Because he's concerned... He gets clarity on their condition. So he's comfortable but concerned. Now he has clarity on their condition. What is the condition? Great trouble and shame. Now I read this, I'm like, well, I understand the great trouble. Because picture an ancient city. Walls, protection. Yep. Like an ancient city where you don't have, you can't just bring triple zero and bring the police force or bring the ambulance force or the fire department. Like an ancient city without walls, there's no protection. There's no safety. There's no security. There's no nothing. Anyone can come in at any point in time and take whatever the heck they want. And they did. So you have no accumulation of wealth. You don't build anything of worth because if you start, this is why the temple was was not beautified. The reason it wasn't beautified because if you start putting gold in the temple, what happens? You've got no walls to protect it. People just come in and take it. And along with that, they'll take They'll take wives and they'll take children. You'll be forced into slavery. Like it is a scary place to be as an ancient city without walls. So when your walls are in rubble, you are in great trouble. Just came to me in that moment. But that's true, right? But why shame? That's the question I've been asking. Why shame? Nehemiah understood it. Why shame? And the reason, oh, this is, this is amazing. The reason there's shame is because walls were more than just protection. Walls actually spoke to the nature of your God. And so when there was a, when there was a big strong wall, it spoke to the, the nations about the strength of your God. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. The nations already knew about Israel's God. Daniel What was the decree that went out after the lion's den to the nations? He is the great God. There is none like him. All must worship. The nations knew about Yahweh. The nations knew about Israel's God. It had been proclaimed. It was proclaimed from Nebuchadnezzar. It was proclaimed by the kings of Persia. The nations knew about this God. So here's what it spoke to then because the walls were down. They knew that Yahweh was mighty and powerful and strong and the great God of heaven. So what it spoke to was the fact that he had abandoned them. And to the rest of the world, they're like, this great God doesn't care. They have sinned. They have rejected. They have abandoned their God. They've not been faithful. They've not been true. And therefore they are living in ruins, which brings shame, guilt, guilt, 
and condemnation. So the people are in great trouble, but they're also in shame. So what does Nehemiah do? Oh, this is so beautiful. Look what it does. Verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see a revelation of their condition leads to contrition. It leads to a contrite heart that David talks about, that broken heart. Here's the question for us. Does our heart break over our sin? Does our heart break over the condition of the church and the condition of the world in which we live? You, know, you guys, I've, some of you are aware, especially the staff, that my family's been getting into chickens lately. Right? We bought chickens. The kids have bought chickens. We've had a chicken coop. It's been a whole saga. All right? And a couple of months ago, we had 10 of them. And off we went. I took them to the football. They were raised right, supporting Port Adelaide. So we went there. We came back from the football and it was late and we hadn't shut the gate. And so as we hadn't shut the gate, the kids were like stressing a little bit, being like, Dad, the gate's not been shut. The gate's not been like, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. The fence is up. They can't get out. Turns out they could. They'd got out into the yard and my dog Wilson had decided to play with some of them. And so what we came home to was nothing less than a massacre. And my beautiful children, I've never, <laughs> Benji's eight years old, he comes in, they all burst into tears. Benji falls on his knees like this. And he goes, those chickens meant everything to us. And they're like, why? They huddled in a circle, their heads were together. They were weeping and crying. Later that night, it was the most beautiful thing. Mabel was sobbing in her bed and Benji was kneeling on his knees, had his hands on him, he was praying over. He's like, Lord, I just pray for Mabel that she'd have, like it was so beautiful. And I made the terrible mistake of saying, guys, they're just chickens. <laughs> Turns out that was the wrong thing to say. Future generation, don't say that. It was like, they're not just chickens, that's our family, all this sort of stuff. Anyway, long story short, there was a weeping and there was a mourning. They ended up being a purchase of even more chickens than we used to have. And now things are going great and the eggs are on sale for five bucks a dozen. But, but here's the thing, as I was sitting there like, they're just chickens for goodness sakes. But it started to stir my heart because I was like, far out. Our world is broken Lives are in rubble, left, right and centre. Where are we at? Do we care? Do we have a Nehemiah heart? Does our heart break for what breaks God's? Do we have that fatherly heart that the lost would know Christ? That those who are far from God would be brought home to God? Do we have a... a a yearning within our spirit that the world would be reconciled to its creator. Let me throw some stats at you and see if this gets you. This, this gets me. Sometimes I like to read the census. It just happens. Here's what I learned. Currently in the church in Australia, 44% of Australians identify as Christian. That's down 20% from 10 years ago. 
Out of that 44%, about 8 to 10% attend church once a month. 38% of people Australia-wide claim to be non-religious. In South Australia, that number rises to 45%. Watch this. In the Adelaide Hills, guess what the number is? 54%. 54% of the Adelaide Hills are irreligious. When you look at the census data, what you'll discover is that we live, we minister, we are called to be a kingdom voice to one of the least churched people groups in our nation. Amen. We, we are ministering to one of the, the least, like the, the most irreligious people groups in all of Australia. Friends, there is a mission field there are ruins everywhere. The question is, does our heart break for that? Does the church care? And this is where we need to be repenting. We need to be falling on our knees. We need to do what Nehemiah does in the next few verses because he says, verse five, O Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those uh, who, who keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I pray, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. The first thing he does when he hears about this, when he sees the rubble, is he falls on his knees and he just pours out his heart and he confesses before a holy God. He's like, something's not right. And he's, his heart breaks before God. He starts to confess. It's not just this emotional weeping. He's like, no, we've got to get right before God. There's stuff that we've got to bring before Him. And the church, friends, we have to repent. We've got so caught up in so many things that... We've lost sight of the mission. Like we, the church, think about the state of the church. We're arguing and separating over the fact that some people want to do communion once a month and some people want to do it every week. For God's sake, like we argue and we, we split over the fact that someone wants to wave a flag and dance and someone would rather sit with their arms folded. Like why are we dividing over such silly things? We should just be uniting over the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. The fact that Jesus Christ is the God of yesterday, today and forever, that He died on a cross to save us from our sins. And we can have our differences, but let's run into the mission that God has given us. And this breaks Nehemiah's heart and he starts to confess and starts to say, Lord, have mercy on us. But watch, 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 watch the next thing. Verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you. But if you return to me, so if you confess, when we repent and we keep his commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. What he does after confession, he calls out the covenant keeping God. He reminds God of his covenant. And this is what we need to do. All in this room right now, everyone here has rubble. We are not a perfect people. Every one of us have rubble in our lives. 
God is in the business of reviving the rubble. And it begins with confession. It begins with actually seeing the state of our lives and being moved by that. And it begins with then falling on our knees and saying, Lord, something's not right. And then it begins by reminding ourselves of the covenant-keeping God, the fact that I don't have to pay the price for my own sin, that He has done it for me. And what He asked me to do is come to Him and lay my life down before Him and receive His mercy, receive His grace, receive His forgiveness, receive the blessing of heaven. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is the Isaiah 61 God. He is the one who will proclaim freedom, who will proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He is the God who restores the ancient ruins, who will take what is broken and bring about a double portion. Amen? And we should call Him to that. We should celebrate that. And we get back up and we say, thank you, Jesus, that I get a new day, that the rubble we will be rebuilt. Friends, chapter one here is a prophetic picture of all that's going to come in the rest of Nehemiah. It's, this, it's a foreshadowing. Every little instance that he prays through is a picture of what is about to happen in the physical. There's this confession. There's calling God on his covenant and reminding him of that and then trusting him in that. And then I'm going to close with this. And then what we're going to do is we're going to pray together. But we come to this last part, chapter two, one to five. How are you going? We all good? You got, you got five more minutes? In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, firstly, we were in Chislev. Now we're in Nisan. That is around about three to four months. Here's what I want you to see. Nehemiah is moved emotionally, Yeah. Like he's emotional and he's still emotional. As you keep reading this, the king says, why is your face sad seeing as you're not sick? He's been emotional for four months. His heart is grieved, but he doesn't act emotionally. Sometimes when we're stirred up, we, re- like we react emotionally, which isn't what God calls us to do. We don't want to be reactive. We want to be responsive. We actually want to allow God to stir us up emotionally. We want God to, to do that work and to grieve sin and to grieve the state of our, our lives and our brokenness and, and our world. But then what we want to do is act with, with wisdom and integrity. He waits four months for an opportunity. But when that opportunity comes, he's not shy about it. He's got conviction. Because when you know God's covenant, you'll act with conviction. Watch this. I love this. This is so good. The king says, why is your face sad? Sing as though you're not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. So what did I do? I said to the king, let the king live forever. Let's just get that in there quickly. Look at the boldness. Look at the conviction. Why should my... why?" Should not my face be sad when the city, the place, my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Mic drop. (laughs) He just has this conviction. He's like, why shouldn't I be grieving? Why shouldn't I be upset? Why shouldn't I be lamenting this condition of the world? He doesn't ask for anything. He just speaks the truth 
And then the king said to me, what are you asking? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said, if it pleases the king and I've found favour in your sight, let me go rebuild the walls. See, there's something about that posture of prayer which sees the condition, which has confession, which is living in the reality of God's covenant to his people that knows who we are in Christ, that knows who we are, knows that we can come to our good father, no matter how far we've run, that the father is there hitching up his garment and running to us to take us into his arms and restore to us that which was broken. And when we're in that place, there is great conviction that comes upon us because it gives us purpose. It gives us purpose to go and proclaim that same message to the world, to go and bring that same hope to our neighbour. Amen? To go and bring that message of hope to a region. If you drew a five-kilometre loop, where over 55% of the people in our world have nothing to do with faith. That's not atheist, that's non-religious. That means they're just like, huh. do you know what that means? Claire? Amen. It means opportunity. Come on. It means opportunity, but it means the church has to get off its backside and be the church. We have to stop lamenting in our own stuff and rise up into our calling. We got to stop sitting there going, I can't, God can't use me because I'm broken. Guess what? We all are broken. Get up. Oh, I feel like preaching. Get up. Get up. Yeah, know who you are in Christ. Come up, get out. Yes, you've been broken. Yes, there's been rubble, but He's the God who rebuilds the walls. And we're going to find out in a few weeks that through Nehemiah, God rebuilds an ancient wall in 52 days. The point of that, it's a miracle. You are a miracle. God's work in your life is miraculous. We don't have to be able to understand it, but you are in Him. You are free and you have purpose. And He wants to use you exactly where you are because your story is unique. It's unique. It's unique. Your rubble is different from everybody else's rubble. But guess what? Because of that, maybe five years, 10 years, 20 years, I don't know how long, but one day you'll stand with someone else in the same amount of rubble and you'll say, let me tell you what God did in my life. He took brokenness and he made beauty. And there's some old saints in this place and some not so old saints, but they've been around for a while. And I promise you, every one of them have a story where they'll say, there's been some rubble in my life. But God is faithful. Can anyone say amen to that? God is faithful. So church, we're gonna stand to our feet and what we're going to do is have a moment for prayer. 
and we're going to, band, you guys come up. Caitlin, if you can just play for a little bit. I want to lead us. This is a bit different for us at Hills, but I want to lead us in something. I want to lead us through this, um, this pattern as we pray. It's really hot. Can we turn that heater off? Thank you. But I feel like on behalf, of, on behalf of the church, I just feel like we need to have a moment to confess. That we, have, we need to have a moment to show that contrition of heart. To come before God and say, God, like just pour out that, that heart before Him. And then we're going to remind ourselves of His covenant. And then we're going to be commissioned. Oh, you should have used that word commissioned into the call of God. So let's pray together. Um, John, Claire, Jen and Debbie, can you four come out the front? I hope you're okay with this. I'm throwing you under the bus, but I'm wondering if you can lead us in a bit of this prayer. Is that all right? I just, burning on my heart, I just feel like you should help facilitate this. And what we're going to do is we're just going to hand the mic along and if we can just pray what God lays in our heart around that confession, around that contrite heart, around that covenant renewal and around that mission that God has given us, that would be awesome. Is that okay? Who wants to go first? Who wants to confess, John? Awesome. I bet you all know the song, I am, uh, He is Worthy. And I've been working on that myself for the last, I don't know, few months. And I'm not worthy. I know I'm not worthy. I've lived long enough to know I'm not worthy. And I know I've been unworthy lots. But the song tells me that He is worthy. And because Christ is worthy... It makes me worthy because I've accepted him as my saviour and my Lord and I'm trying to do what he wants me to do, failing miserably at times and getting it right at times. But I know that I'm worthy because when God looks at me, he sees me through Jesus' eyes and Jesus died on a cross so that he could say to Father God, John Moyle, he's okay, he's one of mine. So that's my prayer. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice for all of us. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're here and you fill our hearts and our spirits and we can have you rewarding us and knowing us and we're knowing you. So Lord, I do repent for the way we as a church have been, how we've hurt people at times, how we've not noticed people at times, I pray that we won't be that. Let us have the guts to go up to someone in the street and say, I just want you to know you're loved by God or whatever it is that you put on our hearts to say. But to give us courage, like Nehemiah had to go to the king and he could have had his head chopped off. But he didn't. He went to the king and said, 
when he was asked, he said, I'm sad because Jerusalem is in, in rubble. So, Lord, I pray for all of us that we will be able to do that, that we won't stay in the rubble, that we'll get up, we'll stand up straight, we'll stand up and look God in the face and say, I'll do it for you. I will build the temple. And I pray that for the church, Hills Baptist and Mount Barker, that in this joining together, as David said, the two trees that are strong and big, and 54% of people in this area don't believe in you. We've got to shout that out and change it. In Jesus' name. Jesus, the thing I'm really loving about you right this minute is that um, you, you're, the, you're the sacrifice outside the gate. You're outside the camp. You're the sin sacrifice. You're the one that was sacrificed for the sins that people didn't know anything about, for the ignorant people, ignorant people who are not churched. They don't know anything about your word. They don't even know the Bible at all. People I know like me, like me, Lord, you brought me into your kingdom. You brought me through the gate. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, stir us up so we're not the comfortable ones. We're not the comfortable ones sitting in the camp, but we are looking to him who's outside the gate. He's outside the camp. He's the one who is lifted up for the sin of those who just have no clue, no clue. So Lord, stir us to see you, what you have done in that way, that you have compassion on those who have no idea. So much, so much I could say. <laughs> um, I know when I look back over my life, um, it basically didn't turn out the way I thought it would when I was the age of a lot of you. Um, and there's a lot, um, you know, part, part of it was my fault, part of it was the fault of other people in my life. Um, and I have, have regrets and every so often those regrets rise up and um, they could overwhelm me. Um, but they don't because God is faithful and even though I've messed up my life he's been faithful throughout my life and he helps me to keep going and he just fills me with his love and grace and mercy and it's just so amazing so Lord we do we do come to you we're, we're all broken we've all messed up we all have regrets and um the amazing thing is that you you take all that. And I've just seen so much in my life the way you you've taken the where I've yeah messed up, where I made mistakes and did the wrong thing, whether when I've been lazy and uh, did, didn't really care all that much. But you take it and you you do something with it somehow. <laughs> it's just just amazing, Lord. Um, it's like that beautiful tapestry that we've heard about quite often where you look at the back of the tapestry which is what often we we see and it's just a mess it doesn't make any sense but when we look the front of it we look at from your perspective it's growing into the most beautiful picture and so we do father we we come humbly before you and we say we are sinners and we've messed up but you are gracious and forgiving and we see that so much uh, through your dear son, our 
dear Saviour, who's taken all our mess and mistakes and sins on his, his own body at the cross. And he's making something beautiful. So we do cry out to you, Father. And I do pray for all these beautiful young people who, yes, they'll make mistakes as they go through life and mess up. But may you always be there, Father. And I know you will be. And may they always be able to just turn back to you and say, I'm sorry, I've messed up again. And be able to receive your forgiveness and grace and mercy. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, here goes. For a number of you, you will know. For others, you won't. But this last year has been a very difficult year for me. I have felt like my walls have been broken down and I'm, I'm part of the rubble at the moment, but I'm not staying there. And I know there are some people here, for them in this season, some of you are feeling like you're rubble. And can you ever be rebuilt? And I want to encourage you to not stay there, but to do what you need to do and to know who Jesus is because Jesus knows how to rebuild us. And that's where I'm at now, being rebuilt. But the rebuilding is hard. It's not easy, but it's good because the rebuild is going to be much better than it was before because the reason why I came crashing down was because I'd lost some of my foundation and my foundation is in Jesus. So I just want to encourage you that no matter where you are, know that Jesus is bigger than us, way, way bigger, and God is supreme. So we, we're on the right side of things. So don't give up, but allow others into your pain um, I've been given some beautiful people in my life to help me um, and to encourage me and to speak truth into my life. Um, and so I'm, I'm, on the, I'm heading up. But I have been rubble, but I'm not now. I'm just a bit of a mess. But I'm gonna. I'm. But there's that beautiful Japanese art that takes those bowls, those crack bowls, and puts gold in there, and like Jesus showing Thomas his hands and his side, the pain, the scars were there, but it was turned into beauty. So never think that you're going to be like, like look like a mess. You're going to end up being beautiful. Um, so Lord, I want to pray for all the people out there whose lives are in rubble and, and they want something, Lord, but they don't know where to look. And, and they think they don't know that you're there. Because as Dave said, then they have nothing. They have nothing. And you call us to be that something. And that we don't get stuck in our own mess and our rubble and think we can't do anything until we're right. Because what we can do is come alongside other people who are feeling like rubbish and say, I can travel the journey with you and I have got the gold the gold from Jesus, the love, the, the a vision beyond ourselves into something far greater. So Lord, we pray your vision into us and us into your hurting world and us into the hills. 
where they don't know you. So help us, Lord, to have courage, but to know that our story is individual. And when we speak our story, it is our testimony. And people go, yes, that's me too. And that makes all the world of difference that somebody else understands. And so when we're a mess, we can be just as powerful as those that seem to be so confident. So, Lord, we are yours. Send us. Rebuild us. Because thank you, as John said, you look at us and you see our worth. We are not worthless. We are loved and we are cherished. So, Lord, pour your gold into us and rebuild us into the beauty you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here's what we're going to do as we sing this next song. And um, Steve and Karen and Abs and Mike and other leaders, we're going to have an opportunity for prayer. So we'll just spread out around the room. Uh, and if you would like prayer, please come and, and get prayed for. Don't hold back. Come and, um, yeah, just be encouraged. And second thing, Steve, about halfway through that message, I tried, to, I had a word for you so strong. And I know people don't know you, but I just feel like I have to say this because it's a record. But God put a word on my heart for you halfway through that. And it was, he's not finished with you. And I saw a picture of, a, um, of one of those beautiful old cars. And I saw him lifting up the hood. And he said, it's good in the hood. <laughs> like under there, he's not finished with you. And I'm going to pray with you in a second. Anyway, I just had to say that. So let's spread and uh, come. Yeah, yeah, around. Come forward for prayer. If you want prayer, please come and, and let's worship God and let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.